Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, Google revokes and China chokes why the boring technology might be the better choice and why you're definitely going to want to create an account over at irs.gov before the crooks do it for you. Plus a great batch of IT questions, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 208 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on April 2nd, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. Seriously, go check it out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. I'm digging the Tetris light this week. I feel like it's got something really special going on in the background. Not that I'm not already distracted, I promise. Same thing as usual. <laughs> Alan, I just, I can't lie. I'm all excited. Uh, you and I are going to be live here in the studio. Let's see, what, what did we figure it out? It was uh, the week of 23rd. the 23rd. TechSnap is going to be live in the studio on April 23rd because uh, Alan will be in town for uh, Linux Fest Northwest 2015. So you yeah, could also we didn't meet make it a person. secret like the first time. The second time, did we tell people ahead of time? I don't think so. I think well, it was a surprise. No, I think we did because we wanted emails because we're doing the double recording thing. I, so we I probably see. did. Um, well, we should start telling you now. We need emails. Lots yeah. and lots and lots yeah. of emails. Yeah. All the emails. Yeah, so we'll save them up for the 23rd. Email all of the things. Because we're thinking, you know, if Alan's going to be in studio, let's do a double recording because in studio is awesome and in person is awesome. And if you're going to be at Linux Fest Northwest this year in Bellingham, Washington on the 25th and 26th, you can come say hi to Mr. Jude. Last yes. year, we had a few people show up in their TechSnap 100 shirt. I wonder if this year we'll see people show up in their TechSnap 200 shirt. That'd be pretty cool. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, uh, and also, Chris Moore and I will both be there, and we're going to do some uh, live BSD Now stuff as heck well. Heck yeah, buddy. Uh, so uh, I've set up a meetup group, meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. If you're going to go to Linux Fest Northwest, I have an event there. I'd love for you to RSVP just so we get an idea for swag and stuff. Uh, and right now, it says 22 are going. Okay. So last year, about six to 700 of you showed up. <laughs> so I'm betting it's going to be more than 22. Yeah. <laughs> but if you wouldn't mind going over to meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting, not only is it for Linux Fest Northwest, but I, uh, as the weather gets nicer in the Pacific Northwest, I would like to do more frequent meetups, but I have to be able to gauge how much interest there is because our audience is all over the world. So I don't know if there's really enough of you in this area, but go to meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting, sign up if you'd like to do reoccurring, uh, more frequent events in the Pacific Northwest, and then when I hit the road and go to FESS or go up to Canada or go wherever I might, I, if I have an event in that area or the, or the whole network has an event in that area, we'll organize it using that meetup page. So there's incentive to sign up even if you're not in our area because when we come to your area, that might be a good way to find out. So go to meetup.com slash Broadcasting, totally free. Uh, but really, if you are interested, do it. Because if I don't get more than, uh, you know, maybe 100 people on this thing, I'm going to cancel this crap because it costs me about 15 bucks a month. So... Yeah, it's just, and I don't mind paying that. Is if we if we use this as a tool for the community to get together in person, and have beers, and you know, chat and yeah. eat junk food or whatever we would do, or I don't know, go to a gong bath session at a yoga place, whatever we would do, I would like to see if people are interested in that, and uh, that's how we'll me measure that over at me measure over at meetup.com/slash Jupiter Broadcasting for uh, this uh, Linux Fest and future events as well. So, Alan, uh, I love... Yes, if all of that didn't convince you to move to Canada, just wait till we get to our last news story. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Alan. Our whole pre-show made me want to move to Canada. Uh, but I, I love the, the headline on your uh, first story in the notes here. Why you should choose boring technology. Flat out. What's going mm -hmm. on here? 
Uh, so this is a story from uh, a guy that used to work at Etsy and now works at Stripe, which is uh, Etsy's an e-commerce platform, and Stripe is a payment processor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he says, uh, the basic premise of the article is that if you're building technology, specifically a website or a web service, kind of like Etsy or, or Stripe or anything like that, you know, the things that most people in the kind of startup industry do, um, there's often this bias towards using the latest and greatest technology. Yes. Uh, rather than the same old boring stuff. You might even say a preference. Yeah. Um, and you know there was all those. Uh, do you remember those extra normal uh, YouTube videos about uh, MongoDB? Use it because it's web scale and yeah, web scale. for people that don't even know what web scale means and so. Anyway, uh, so this often turns out to bite you in the end, right? You <laughs> look at the people that base their site or product on Foundation DB, which recently got bought and then shut down by Apple. It's like, right. oh, well, uh, the platform we based our technology on just disappeared. The vendor, and, uh, the vendor is, comes in and buys them out. And of course, this is a great exit strategy for these kind of startups is getting a nice buyout like mm-hmm. this. Right. But the startups that base their product on the other startup are now like... Um, to boned. Yep. Yeah. Or like, you know, podcast networks that base their distribution on like Justin.tv that randomly just shut off one day. Or blip.tv. <laughs> Yes, or blip.tv. Which is a couple years ago now. It just ate all of your archives one day. Yeah. Yeah. If you're ever on the Jupiter Broadcasting website and you're watching a particularly old episode and you see like a flash player and it comes up with this big weird error message or or even an HTML5 player with this weird error message saying about it might be read with content unavailable, that's because a lot of our back archive got screwed one day when blip.tv switched their policy on uh, embeds and and, uh, file downloads. Because, you know, before they were like $5 for unlimited everything and then they were like, oh, we're losing money. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? You mean we can't just burn VC funding forever? Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, whereas if you look at like one of the most popular sites on the internet, Facebook, <laughs> uh, yeah. you would think it would be just a bastion full of all these like fancy technologies. But really, it was written in PHP and MySQL, and even to this day, it's still powered by mostly those same technologies. You know, They've done some stuff to make PHP faster for their specific use case and so on. But most of it is still just that. You know, they've they've you know advanced and, and built things on after. But if they had tried to base it on on some new unproven technology or what was popular when Facebook started, it probably never would have worked. Right? It would have been down all the time and it would never would have taken off. You know, specifically, uh, the quote from the article here is the nice thing about using boring uh, uh, or the nice thing about boringness or constrained things is that the capabilities of these things are well understood Mm. right people know what mysql can do and what it can't do Mm -hmm. it's good at and what it's not you know people think oh mongodb it's good at everything there's no downsides or you know as far as we know it works great for everything except for oh well i have this one use case and when i try to use it it just blows up Mm -hmm. uh so more importantly uh the failure modes what mysql does when it's not working is understood it's like, oh, we did a join and we didn't have an index, so it's slow. Right. So we can add an index. Or, well, and, you know, and it'll you can always even, be this way. You can even say, like, people have had more experience with it in failure mode, so people are more familiar with how to handle bad situations exactly. and recover from those. And yes, there's more or tools there's around that. There's a tool yeah. so that if the power goes out in the middle of a write and your SQL database is screwed, you can, yeah. you know, yeah. use the the binary logs yeah. and, and use yeah. your backup and there's tools for doing a backup. Right. And you're just you're uh, just so less in that you're you're so less often in that position of well this is the first time we've ever seen anything like this or this yeah. is the only use case we know for this technology or this is a rare use case for this technology. Uh, there's a lot less outlier situations. Right. 
Or, for example, there was uh, a whole range of versions of MongoDB where the backup tool didn't work correctly. So everybody was doing <laughs> oh, backups, no. but because nobody had had a failure, no one had ever tried to restore from those backups. And then finally someone did during an emergency or whatever, oh, and it's no. like, oh, our backups aren't actually any good. That's not how you want to find out. They're just corrupt and full of gibberish. Mm. Yikes. And so... Uh, specifically, the guy who wrote the article says, anyone who knows me well will understand that it's uh, only with overwhelming sense of malaise that I now invoke the specter of Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> but I must. And you see the picture. <laughs> yeah. There's good old Donnie. And this is, uh, you know, his famous quote about, there, you know, there's no knowns and then known unknowns yeah. and unknown unknowns yeah. and so on. Yeah. It's uh, the Socratic paradox about, you know, I know one thing and that's that I know nothing. Uh, when choosing technology, there are both known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Uh, a known unknown is something like we don't know what happens uh, if the database saturates the CPU, right? If all the threads on the CPU are running at 100%, what's the database going to do? Uh, an unknown unknown is something like, hmm, geez, I didn't even occur to us to think that uh, adding stats, uh, uh, writing out the stats all the time would actually cause the garbage collection process to pause in our Java VM. And now every time we write out the stats, the entire application freezes until it's done. Yeah. So we're having this random stall happening on a regular interval as we write out our statistics. It's like, you know, that's the examples of a, a known unknown and a no, unknown unknown. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like the things you can anticipate but don't know what will happen and then the things where you didn't even think of it not happening and so on. You know, and both steps are typically non-empty, right? There's things you don't know that you don't know and things you know that you don't know. Uh, you're never not going to have... There's never going to be nothing that you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, unfortunately. Um, you know, but uh, even for technologies that exist for decades, there's still going to be these things but There's less for shiny new technology the magnitude of the unknown unknowns is significantly larger and that's important right uh, so the advantage to using boring technology is that more people understand how it works and more importantly more people understand how it fails uh, you know there were more people that used it before you and uh, who tried to do something similar to you doing where you can maybe learn from them or you know, you won't find the answer on Stack Overflow if you're the first person to ever try this. <laughs> That's very true. You're going to be the one writing that It's very hard question. to get help when you're the only person doing this. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the diagrams you just showed there, they were talking about, you know, if you looked in a vacuum at each individual problem and the best way to solve it, you would come up with a lot of different solutions. But if you look at it uh, more critically, you can be like, well... We have these three solutions, and we can solve every one of our problems with these three, so we don't need to use all ten possible solutions. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, uh, one of the most uh, worthwhile exercises that he recommends is to consider how you would solve your immediate problem without adding anything new. So you have ah. a problem, and you need to solve it. Can you solve it with the tools you already have instead of just adding something new? Right. Right. Because everybody's heard of, oh, uh, so we're having this problem with scaling our database. Well, you know, we should use MongoDB because it's web scale. It's like, well, we could change our whole database solution or we could just put our MySQL server on SSDs and now our IOPS are high enough and everything's fine. <laughs> yeah, funny how that works. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, we can just try harder. Right? Uh, first posing this question should detect the situation where the problem that exists is just that somebody really wants to use some new technology, right? 
And in that case, you should just immediately abort. Uh, and that's, that's actually probably a lot more common than people think, right? People like new toys and new challenges and learning new things. Mm-hmm. Right? If you're a developer and you've been doing PHP for a long time, you're like, yeah, so I can keep using MySQL or, you know, I'd, I'd love to actually try MongoDB. Yeah, so right. for our next project, let's just use MongoDB. It's yeah, like, enough people are doing it. Well, and we know it works. I mean, it's fine. And, and you know, I actually use MongoDB for a, a project. And, you know, for that project, it worked quite well. Uh, specifically, we were dealing with geolocation stuff. Hmm. And so being able to just do a query that says, give me all the people that are within this radius, uh, you know, it had some features that actually made that quite useful. Okay. Uh, I don't know that I would use it for everything. Although there are a lot of attractive features to it. And yeah. if you're making that decision, then sure, maybe that's the right thing. But uh, one of the other examples I get is, you know, if, you, if you're a shop that's been using Ruby everywhere and it's like, oh, well, we have this problem. We could solve it in Ruby, but somebody's already solved it in Python. Well, you know, it doesn't really make sense to just go out there and pull in Python and make a bunch of people learn it just to solve that one problem when you can just solve that in Ruby. Right? Uh, and, you know, businesses should be trying to avoid new costs that come from learning new languages and converting things and uh, taking on new risks that, you know, now we're going to have a problem and we don't have a Python expert anymore while well, we have is a bunch of novices that just started using it and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the article goes on, and it's uh, quite good, and I recommend people read it, especially uh, if you're uh, doing development on anything, but also from the system in perspective, because oftentimes you're kind of the gatekeeper of what technologies become available on the platform. And, you know, as uh, the system, I'm often like, I don't want to install every one of these things, right? You get right. one database. Yeah. I don't want to maintain three different databases right. and back them all up and, and make sure track the, the patches three of them, and my, my backups for the MySQL database. And uh, this was uh, at the site I built, we actually mixed MongoDB and MySQL. Mm. So certain data was in MySQL, and then I had corresponding records in the MongoDB. Okay. We basically we, we didn't trust MongoDB, so we stored like the user accounts and stuff in MySQL, and then just the data about what video games each person had, where they were, and what they wanted to trade, and so on. All the stuff that we needed the document format for yeah, okay. in the MongoDB. But eventually, we had the problem of, A, in our backups, how do we get a consistent backup of exactly what the MySQL database and what exactly what the Mongo database looked like at exactly this point in time? Otherwise, we might... The MongoDB refers to yeah. a user that doesn't exist, or yeah. a user exists and the uh, corresponding MongoDB d- entry doesn't exist, and you know it just became a mess. So I definitely wouldn't do that ever again. <laughs> okay, good to know. I wouldn't uh, think so. But so, so as a system bin, you can use some of these arguments to try to keep them focused on using uh, one set of tools instead of having three tools for each different thing. Yeah, and you know it talks about you know if you decide that you want to change to something, you can do that, but you have to have a process and make sure that you don't end right. up with. And that's you know, where I was using using APC for the cache over here and uh, memcache for the cache over here yeah, when you should be storing all your cache in one place right. so you can validate and that it more to easily. me makes a ton of sense. But here's the question I would ask and pose to you, Alan, is it seems like when you get into an institution and this becomes an institutional uh, mandate or part of the culture of the IT organization, it quickly can become religion. And then you become, then you walk this line of never willing to try new things, never willing to try a way to optimize things. So I'll give you an example. Um, I had a client that just straight up refused to try iSCSI. No way were they going to use iSCSI. Everything has to be hardwired attached to their SCSI 
<laughs> or fiber, right? And that's it. Just do fiber or SCSI. We're not doing iSCSI ever. And it limited our flexibility on what we could do because they didn't want to introduce something kind of new, but wasn't really all that new. Uh, it was new to Windows at the time. Right. but uh, uh, And so there was some legitimate issues initially with Windows implementations, but that had mostly been sorted out at the time. And I really felt like there... Um, not ignorance, but their um, stubbornness. Yeah, rigidness uh, uh, sort of uh, forced us to implement a less than ideal solution. So, how do you right. avoid and, that? Uh, actually, there's a story in the roundup uh, kind of about this. You know, we've all heard of not invented here. Yeah. It's basically a bias where a company says, we're not going to use something somebody else invented. We always want to use something I wrote. And, you know, that's something a lot of developers have. It's like, well, there's someone else's solution, but it's never going to be exactly the way I want. So I should just write my own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we see that all uh, the time. And I admit to doing that myself. <laughs> you know, I looked at a, there was, a, I was looking for a, a thing to do a status page for Scale Engine to, to announce our maintenances and, and put up notices when things are broken. Um, and, or when things are under maintenance and so on. And I found one that did most of what I wanted, but not exactly the way I wanted it. And the way it did maintenance is it was just, you could post when a maintenance started, but you couldn't say, you know, next week on Wednesday, we're going to have a maintenance. Mm. That, that wasn't part of the system. Uh, and so that was kind of a problem for us. Uh, and so I ended up basically rewriting my own thing from scratch. You know, sometimes you got to have a perfect one weekend. So it was okay. But you know, anyway, so uh, and then and then you know I thought you know I you know I thought the punchline was you know I thought I thought the punchline was going to be you're going to say it didn't do what I want so instead I decided never to have anything break. <laughs> Sadly, I'm not Chuck Norris. So that work. <laughs> you got exactly where I was going. Uh, but then uh, the article goes on to talk about how there's the opposite of that that might be even worse. Oh, which is never invent here. As we never build our own thing or our own uh -huh. middleware, or everything. we yeah. always just use a bunch of off-the-shelf things. Right, and then you're stuck in this situation where you're trying to make these, you know, three different off-the-shelf applications try to integrate, and right. they just don't want to. Yeah, yeah. And also, I would I would argue that it's a good way to lose A players because if you don't let them custom build the solutions, if it's the right solution for that job, they're going to go somewhere that will let them do that kind of stuff. Exactly. Uh, speaking of custom solutions, Mr. Jude, that brings us to our first sponsor this week, and that's iX Systems. Head over to iXSystems.com slash TechSnap and get yourself an ultimate custom solution powered by them Intel Xeon processors. Yeah, iX Systems is the hardware vendor of choice for both Jupyter Broadcasting and Scale Engine for many, many reasons, but we don't have to tell you why. Go over to iXSystems.com slash TechSnap, then click on their What's New page, and uh, DCIG Research will tell you why. They just awarded iX Systems TrueNAS the excellent rating in their Hybrid Storage Array Buyer's Guide. That's a big mm -hmm. deal. Congratulations to iX Systems, ranked best yes. in class in the hardware category and excellent for software. How about that, yes. dude? Uh, that, that hardware is just amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> iX Systems is truly the industry leader in storage and servers driven by open source. They have the expertise in the bench, and they will truly work with you to make sure it's a white glove solution. And then you have the support yes. plus the burn-in process so when you get the hardware, you know it's going to rock. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Download that ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source. It's 11 key traits. you got to demand from your hardware provider. And if you're going to be at Linux Fest Northwest, stop by and say hi to iX. I wonder if they'll bring a mini. Yes. I hope they do. Um, I don't know. And sometimes they bring the free NAS mini. bulky to bring yeah. the plane, but they yeah, but might sometimes anyway. they bring it. It depends on yes. like probably how they who's coming and, and who can pack it yes. all that. But uh, it's pretty neat. And then also you can pick their brain about their products. They're all super passionate. You know, the people that work for iX Systems yes. truly love that company. That's pretty mm -hmm. exciting too. When when you when you're interacting with somebody in this field, uh, not only are they 
knowledgeable in the topic, but you can tell they love their job, which is so yeah. nice when you're dealing Makes with somebody who's difference. truly, yeah, yeah, it really does. Uh, and, and that's, that's IX systems through and through IX systems.com slash tech snap. Go check them out. And really a big thanks to IX systems for sponsoring the tech snap program. Indeed. You guys rock. And they also support the BSD now program, which we're also very appreciative mm-hmm. of. So I saw the story this morning and I was going to run it in tech talk. And I thought, no, nope, this is definitely a story to have Alan break down for me. Uh, and it's Google Chrome. And uh, I guess they're revoking uh, some certificate authorities in that are normally baked into the Chrome browser. Am I, am I tracking right. so far? So, so there's the root ter- uh, certificate store, which every, each browser has one, uh, or in sure. Microsoft's case is actually built into the OS. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically a list of the root certificate authorities that are trusted. And Google is taking one of those out. Uh, specifically CNNIC, or the Chinese uh, Internet Information uh-huh. or Internet Network Information Center, okay. uh, which is a certificate authority in China, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and specifically what happened there was on March 20th, uh, Google security engineers noticed a number of unauthorized certificates being used for uh, Gmail and other Google domains. So somebody was pretending to be gmail.com and having an SSL certificate that was trusted but was not issued uh, to Google specifically. Right. Okay. So Google and Chrome and Internet Explorer have certificate pinning where, you know, they know what Google's certificate is supposed to be. And when they see one that's not Google's, then they, they balk at it. And uh, Google got the alerts about this and was like, all right, why are there these fake certificates uh, for Gmail going around? Yeah. And they found that the certificates were issued by a subordinate CA uh, from a company called MCS Holdings, mm. uh, which is in Egypt. Mm. And uh, if you go to their website, it says, established in 2005, uh, Middle East Communication Systems offers value-added uh, distribution focusing on networking and automation business. Uh, so they make <laughs> firewalls and uh, security appliances. That is a crappy website. Look at that thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, so they make firewalls and specifically a network security appliance that does the whole spying on your SSL sessions thing that we've seen before, like uh, the Superfish one and what you can do with RelayD and so on. Hey, thumbs up, Alan. Most, thumbs up. Yeah. Most of these uh, corporate firewall type things, yeah. uh, what they they have a self-signed certificate or whatever that they use to make the right. fake certificates and you have to have each machine in the company trust it, right? Uh, so that they, because, you know, it's a fake certificate. Yeah. Uh, well, what these guys did was they got a subordinate certificate from CNNIC. So they basically became a sub certificate authority so they could make their own certificates. And uh, then they used their subordinate CA and baked it into their appliance so that anybody with the appliance would then be issuing certificates for every website their visitors went to. And the big difference being that they would be trusted by every uh, browser because CNNIC, the route that right. issued the MCS certificate yeah. that issued the fake certificate, yeah. was in the root trust store. Yeah. Uh, and it says, so CNNIC is included in all major root stores, and so the mis- issued certificate would be trusted by almost all browsers and operating systems. Chrome on Windows, OS X, and Linux, Chrome OS, and Firefox 33 or greater would have rejected the certificates because of the public key pinning thing, uh, although the misused certificates for other sites likely exist. Right? So the MCS didn't uh, issue just the uh, Google certificates. It would be every website people went to. So it wasn't only Google that was affected. Yeah. Google was just protected if the user was on uh, was using Chrome or Chrome OS or using Firefox 33 or later because it has the baked-in public key checking for Google mm. uh, to try to combat this type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So Google immediately added the MCS certificate to his revocation list so that it would no longer be trusted. Uh, and then they contacted CN Nick and asked, what the hell's going on here? So on the 22nd, CN Nick uh, responded to explain that they had uh, been contracted with MCS Holdings uh, on the basis that MCS would only issue certificates for domains that they had registered. Hmm. However, rather than keep the private key on a suitable hardware security module, MCS installed it in a man-in-the-middle proxy. These devices intercept secure communication by masquerading as the intended destination and are sometimes used by companies to intercept employees' secure traffic for monitoring or legal reasons. Right. The employees' computers normally have to be configured to trust the proxy uh, for it to be able to do this, right? Because it'd be a self-signed certificate. However, in this case, the presumed proxy was given the full authority of a public CA, which is Jeez. a serious breach of the CA system. Yeah. So Google accepted their explanation of what happened, right? They were contracted to, uh, by this company to be a sub-CA, and then the sub-CA went and did something they weren't supposed to do. Uh, but Google wasn't really satisfied with the situation. Uh, so this explanation is congruent with the facts. However, CNNX still delegated their uh, substantial authority to an organization that had no fit, uh, that was not fit to hold it. Right. right? The yeah. MCS company didn't have a hardware security module, and they weren't really issuing uh, SSL certificates to anybody. It's inappropriate. And so they really shouldn't have been made a subordinate CA. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, C uh, CNNIC has specific obligations that it must fulfill in order to be a trusted uh, root CA, and they seem to have uh, violated that here. And I added links to the uh, CAB forum, which is the CA slash browser forum. It's where the certificate authorities and the browsers like Google, Microsoft, uh, Fire, uh, Mozilla, etc., come together and kind of together set the policies on what certificates will be acceptable. And they set the policy that said, you know, no certificates issued in 2015 or later will be allowed to be SHA-1. They all have to be SHA-256 and so on, right? And that's the reason why we're moving forward slowly on getting more secure certificates is because this forum came up and said, hey, if you want to be a root CA, you have to meet this minimum standard by this minimum date. Hmm. <clears throat> in addition, uh, Mozilla on their wiki has posted the maintenance and enforcement uh, for their CA policy. And they have a section there called Potential Problems uh, and Prevention and Response. Uh, so it basically enumerates all the possible problems that could come up uh, when you're a CA and what Mozilla will do about them. Okay. So if a CA issues a, bunch, uh, a small number of certificates that aren't valid, like you know, accidentally issue one for Google because they got scammed or something, yeah. then that certificate, uh, if the CA has a list of every bad certificate they issued, then they'll... Uh, Firefox will, only, will release an update that will revoke those certificates, and if it's really bad, they might revoke the whole route, mm. or ho the whole intermediate or mm. whatever. Uh, and they, they basically iterate all the, all the problems and what the solutions might be, or what steps Mozilla will take immediately, and then what they will consider doing uh, going forward from that. Uh, right. So Mozilla has a whole policy for it, and that Google basically has something similar. I just don't know if they publish it somewhere. Mm. Um, so then on April 1st, which is yesterday, Google uh, finished their investigation and said, as a result of a joint investigation of the events surrounding this incident by Google and CNNIC, uh, we've decided that the CNNIC root and extended validation certificate authorities will no longer be recognized in Google products. Hmm. Uh, this will take effect in a future Chrome update. And they're not specifying exactly when yet. Yeah. To assist customers affected by this decision, because if you bought your certificate through CNNIC or any of the CNNIC subordinate CAs, your users will start getting the big scary warning instead of your website. Uh, 
So to assist customers affected by this decision, for a limited time, we will allow CNNIC's existing certificates to continue to be marked as trusted in Chrome through the use of a publicly disclosed whitelist. So CNNIC will, ha- will have to publish to Google a list of all the certificates that they have that are valid, and Google will trust those and nothing else. Yeah. Uh, so that if any more are issued with any of these subordinate CAs or something, Google will implicitly not trust those. Uh, while neither we nor CNEC believe that any further unauthorized digital certificates have been issued, nor do we believe that uh, misissued certificates were used outside of the limited scope of MCS Holdings test network for their firewall appliance, yeah. CNEC will be working to prevent any future incidents. Uh, CNEC will implement certificate transparency, which I'll explain in a minute, uh, for all their certificates prior to any request for re-inclusion. Uh, so Google's saying that CNNIC will have to fully implement uh, Google's proposed certificate wow. transparency system if they want to get uh, retrusted. Playing hard. Uh, we applaud CNNIC on their proactive steps and welcome them to reapply once substantial mm. technical and procedural controls are in place mm-hmm. to make sure this doesn't happen again. <laughs> now, CNNIC issued an official uh, response to this. Uh, that's quite short, but... Uh, to the point. ...basically says, uh, <laughs> one... The decision that, that Google has made is unacceptable and unintelligible to CNNIC. <laughs> and meanwhile, CNNIC sincere, uh, sincerely urges that Google would take users' rights and interests into full consideration. Uh, two, for the users that CNNIC has already issued the certificates to, we guarantee that your lawful rights and interests will not be affected. Wow. I don't even know what that really is supposed to mean. <laughs> the whole thing is great. Google, the, the, the decision Google has made is, is A, unacceptable, and B unintelligible to them. <laughs> so, so we can't understand it. But it's unacceptable. And that's, so it's definitely unacceptable. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, that's I can great. see that. Basically, um, if CNNIC gets their root status revoked, then they're practically out of business. Now, yeah. um, I don't think they're technically a business. Uh, their address is, you know, Floor 1, Building 1, Software Park, the Chinese Academy of Science. Uh, they're kind of a government-ish institution. Uh, so I don't know that they're actually in this uh, to be a business or whatever, but... <laughs> they're in it for know, something, Alan. I don't know what they're in it for. Kind of profound uh, uh, implications. It, what's interesting is that I, I more expected CNEC to lose its root CA status over the fact that it's controlled by the Chinese government rather than the fact they sold a subordinate CA to a company in Egypt that abused it. Yeah. Uh but anyway, uh, so Mozilla is considering what they should do now. They have a big mailing list thread. Hmm. And uh, so far, the policy, they haven't decided yet, but what they, their working version of what they would do is uh, reject certificates chained to CNNIC that were uh, that with a not before date after a threshold date. So basically, they're going to set a point. Uh, I don't know if it'll be a couple days ago or a couple weeks from now or whatever, but say any certificate issued after this time will not be trusted by Mozilla. Okay. They will then request that CNNIC provide a list of currently valid certificates and publish that list uh, publicly so that the community can uh, recognize any backdated certificates, right? Because they could, you could, it's possible to issue a certificate that you say started, you know, a year ago so that it would still be valid. Um, and so Mozilla wants CNNIC to publish every certificate they have. Mm. Uh, and if we ever see a certificate signed by CNNIC that's not on that list, we will know not to trust it. And so this is similar to Google's whitelist. A little less aggressive, for, though. Uh, they won't actually build the whitelist feature into the browser. Mm-hmm. They will just have the community monitor it and uh, 
revoke CNAC entirely if they find them issuing back data. Not a bad middle ground, really. Yeah. Uh, basically, it saves Mozilla having to build a whole feature around this just mm -hmm. to cover it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then lastly, allow CNAC to reapply for full inclusion uh, with some additional requirements that are still being discussed. One of them might be the certificate transparency thing. Mm. And then finally, if uh, CNIC's reapplication is unsuccessful, then the root certificate will be removed entirely. Wow. Uh, specifically, uh, a number of places in the thread, the Mozilla community feels that CNIC needs to get more than just a slap on the wrist to ensure that other CAs and governments that might try to force CAs to do things uh, get the message that this type of behavior is unacceptable and has severe consequences. Yeah. Right? You know, it, you don't want to be DigiNotar and be put out of business if you're a CA. So you better be very careful and not be right. just doing whatever to make money or gotta, to count out to the government. Got to put the fear of Google in them. Put the fear yeah. of Google. Well, not just Google, right? Mozilla as well. Yes, I know. But anyway. But Google. Uh, so Google uh, reiterated the need for the Certificate Transparency Project, yeah. which they have up at certificate-transparency.org. So uh, Certificate Transparency makes it possible to detect SSL certificates that have been mistakenly issued by a certificate authority or maliciously acquired from an otherwise unimpeachable certificate authority. It also makes it possible to identify certificate authorities that have gone rogue and are uh, maliciously issuing certificates. I've gone rogue. So uh, basically the idea here is that um, certificate authorities can report to the Certificate Transparency Project every certificate they issue um, so that uh, websites could subscribe and be like, hey, tell me anytime somebody issues a certificate for my company or my domain. Mm, yeah. But also, uh, browsers can report to certificate transparency which certificates they're seeing when they go to Google or Facebook or whatever. And if it's not the same one everyone else is seeing, then they know that they're seeing something fishy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so basically, uh, the certificate transparency servers will basically be an append-only log that cannot be modified and has a cryptographically trusted timestamp. Ah, uh, yeah. And they'll basically be like, you know, the certificate we saw for Facebook yesterday was this. If you see a different one today, that might be fishy. And so on. Uh, and there was some talk about using this actually uh, in the FreeBSD package system as part of our uh, a way to do certificates. Uh, oh, for packages. Without having to trust a CA. Cool. Right? Because normally, you know, if you do SSL, the problem is you have to trust the CA. And yeah. specifically, the FreeBSD project is not in the business of deciding which CAs to trust. Right. So it doesn't ship with a, a, a trusted root CA. Okay. Uh, you can install the Mozilla one, which is what most people do. And that's yeah. what like curl and everything uses. Yeah. But uh, the FreeBSD project doesn't ship with one by default. So we can't just use HTTPS to secure our package system. So instead, we ship on the install CD a... Uh, public key that you can use to verify that the package you download was signed by us. Uh, but, you know, we'd love to be able to do yeah, SSL, yeah. And, but without a CA, by yeah. using the certificate transparency no to say, yeah, it's a self-issued certificate by uh, FreeBSD, but it is the real one because certificate of transparency proves it. I love that, Alan. That'd be really cool. Hmm. That makes me think of all kinds of uses for that when you say it like that. Mm -hmm. uh, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, no, I just have some extra coverage from uh, a couple of the websites that yeah. also covered it. Yeah, we got some links to ours and others in the show notes. Of course, links to everything Alan just talked about are in the show notes. Uh, Alan, then I'll stop and tell you about something I think is pretty awesome, and that's Ting. It's my mobile service provider for over two years now. Go to techsnap.ting.com. That'll give us credit, and I'll give you a $25 discount off your first Ting device 
Or if you have a Ting compatible device, it'll give you a $25 service credit. Now, are you familiar with what Ting is? Because it's pretty special. It's truly mobile that's different. No contracts, so no early termination fees, and you only pay for what you use. Ting takes your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. They add it all up, and whatever bucket you fall into, that's what you pay at the end of the month. It's a flat $6 for your phone line. So if you want one or two lines, you just pay $6 for each phone. I've got three. Why not, right? In fact, I'm probably going to add a fourth soon. Uh, and it's just $6. And if you're a small business, that's an unbelievable value or even a family with, uh, with multiple people in the family that need mobile devices. So you have no contracts, no other termination. You only pay them for what you use. Everything's included like hotspot and tethering and the picture messaging. They have no hold customer service. You can call them at one 855 ftw anytime between 8 a.m. or 8 p.m. East Coast time. That's Allen time. And a real human being answers that phone. Now, the other thing I love about Ting is because of the way they're structured, they don't have to trick you into like using more data than you're supposed to or get you to overpay just in case you might use it one time. So they can just straight up tell you how to save money. A mm -hmm. mobile carrier that tells you how to save data. Uh, and they talk about this uh, free app in the Google Play Store that will route your phone calls over the Hangout uh, network. So you can make phone calls easily over Wi-Fi using this app. So you dial it with your phone and it routes it over the Hangouts app. This will save you on your, wi on your minutes. It's really cool. It's a nice tip that's over on the Ting blog. Lots of good stuff on the Ting blog. Start by going to techsnap.ting.com, techsnap.ting.com. Also check out their devices. Great prices. Get a SIM card for $9. Get a Kyocera Dual X, Dura XT, just a feature flip phone, 47 bucks, no contract. You own it. But here's the real one. This is the, the deal that I just cannot imagine is going to last very long. The Motorola Moto G, fantastically reviewed phone, shipping with Android KitKat 4.4 and likely to get another update soon. $66 when you go to techsnap.ting.com first. $66 for an unlocked Moto G that you own with no contract. You can... That you could make it a if you bought it if you used it for nothing else than making it a uh, a Wi-Fi hotspot that's a great deal. But really, it's a full featured great Moto G phone, sixty six dollars when you go to techsnap.ting.com. Then you've got mobile service. It's got no contracts. You turn on the data when you need it. It's so great. Uh, and also, Ting is uh, expanded to GSM too, so they got lots of great GSM devices you can bring over. You can grab yourself a Wi-Fi hotspot or just get that nine dollars SIM and put it in anything you want. They've also got the full range of iPhones now, and people are buying those like crazy. Go check it out, techsnap.ting.com. And a really big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You guys rocking for you sysadmins out there that always need data connectivity. Go get yourself a $6 hotspot, right? Because you're going to buy the hotspot once, no contract. You turn it on when you need it, techsnap.ting.com. Okay, Mr. Jude, our next story brings us to our good friend, Mr. Brian Krebs. And... It is mm -hmm. tax time, isn't it? Boy, it is It is getting near. Tax tax day in the United States is April 15th, Alan. So just a uh, couple of see, weeks away. Canada, we get like a week more or it's the end of the month of April or something. I yeah. forget exactly when it is. But. but really it begins as soon as January hits. Then Americans start going crazy over their taxes. So this we are yeah, prime time tax time. So of course Krebs has got something about the IRS.gov. Perfect timing. <laughs> Actually, this is the first year where I haven't filed already. Uh, oh, really? But it was because there was a problem with my T4, but I got to fix it. I have to file soon. So I kept my refund. T4, anyway. is that like a blood screening? What is, that? what is that? No, T4 is like a W2. Yeah, okay. It's a statement of what money I earned this year. Anyway, uh, so. Mr. Uh, Krebs. The top of the article's quote is kind of the gist of the story. If you are an American and haven't yet created an account at irs.gov, you may want to take care of that before tax fraudsters create an account in your name and steal your personal and tax data in the process. So, uh, irs.gov has a website where you can uh, sign up, claim your 
social security number or whatever. Uh, and through that have access to all your tax information. Uh, in Canada, we have something similar, the CRA account that allows you to log in. Hmm. And, for example, I can see uh, the results of my return last year, uh, my, I forget what it, the so assessment like they sent at the end that info. tells me how much tax shelter I have left for the next year and so on. Uh, and it, yeah, it's a very handy little thing that you can log into. And, you know, each person can only have one account. Uh, so recently, Krebs on uh, Security heard from Michael Casper, who's a 35-year-old reader of the blog, who tried to obtain a copy of his most recent tax transcript uh, from the Internal Revenue Service. Casper said he sought the transcript after trying to file his taxes through the desktop version of TurboTax and being informed by TurboTax that IRS had rejected the request because he had already filed his return for this year which he hadn't. So uh, he immediately phoned the IRS's theft, uh, identity theft hotline and was told a direct deposit had been made that very same day for his tax refund and the request uh, made with his social security number and address, but was deposited to a bank account that he didn't recognize. Hmm. Uh, the foster filed the new return using nearly identical data to the correct information that the victim had filed the previous year. So that suggested to the victim that they somehow had access to his last year's uh, transcript uh -huh. because they basically filed exactly the same tax return but just changed a couple of things. Hmm. Uh, so the victim suspects that the fraudster was able to use the irs.gov portal after claiming this guy's account uh, to view his previous returns and extract the information he needed to file the new return. Uh, the fraudster filed a corrected W-2 and basically adjusted the amount that had already been withheld uh, from the um, from his paychecks, yeah, uh, to be exactly six thousand dollars more than it actually had been, yeah. uh, so that basically we get a six thousand dollars larger refund. Uh, you know, the story goes into more detail about the case, including uh, basically he managed to track down the bank account that the money was sent to. Turns out it belongs to a college student in Pennsylvania <laughs> who fell for a money mule scam on Craigslist. Uh, basically, they got into something on Craigslist where they were told, you know, do this work and we'll send you this big pile of money and, right. and you send some of that money off to Nigeria via Western Union. How somebody didn't think that was suspicious, I will never know. Yeah, they just didn't think too hard about it. I, I, I remember when I was actually, when I was in college, one of my roommates uh, got into something very similar. Oh. Uh, he was trying to sell his uh, bongo, the musical instrument on <laughs> eBay. Okay. And somebody bid some like ridiculously large amount for it, like hundreds of dollars over what it should have been. And then sent him a check for like $3,000 plus the amount uh, for the bongo. And then with instructions saying, deposit this check, then send me the $3,000 extra and keep the amount for the bongo. <laughs> uh, and Mike was like, I'm going to just not do that. Because, oh, uh, wow. you know, he started getting phone calls from the scammer. <laughs> but, uh, you know, after a couple of weeks, the bank took all the money back because it turns out the check, which was like a, a bank draft that's not supposed to be uh, forgeable. Yeah. That had been forged. Oh. Uh, basically, it was supposed to be like it was the type that's supposed to clear instantly and not ever be have a possibility of being fake or whatever, uh, but was. And so if Michael had actually sent the money uh, to the scammer, he would have been out the $3,000. Jeez. Uh, which is worse than the case of if this mule who just you know, spent most of the money. Yeah. Uh, except for they actually did use Western Union to send it on to the fraudster. So the fraudster got a chunk of uh, the tax refund, which was over $8,000. Uh, and then the student spent 
you know, the, all of their part of it already. <laughs> uh, so specifically, uh, Krebs talks about the IRS's process for verifying people require, uh, requesting a transcript is vulnerable to exploitation by fraudsters because it relies on static identifiers and so-called knowledge-based authentication, uh. right? You know, if they figure out what your SSN number is, then they, they know what your SSN number is and nothing you can do to change that, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like a password. Mm-hmm. And no, the, uh, the challenge questions can easily be defeated with information widely available uh, for sale on cybercrime underground or, you know, with a small amount of online searching. Uh, basically, in these cases, uh, the IRS actually depends on um, Equifax, the, one of the credit bureaus, to actually find out information about you to ask you questions about mm-hmm. it. So if someone else was able to get access to that same report, then they already know all the answers. Uh, and also, if you go to the, uh, what's that, freeyearlycreditreport.com or yeah, whatever that yeah. Congress mandates that, they use those same KBA questions to control access of course. to the report. So if I can Google or Facebook or whatever to find out a little bit about you to answer mm-hmm. some of these questions, mm-hmm. then I can get your credit report. And with that, I can then answer any question the IRS might have. Isn't that always the problem? It's just too easy. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, in addition, Americans who have not already created an account at the Social Security Administration under the, uh, their Social Security number are also vulnerable to basically the same thing, but with a different website. So they recommend that people go and sign up at both websites. Uh, a, because once you're signed up, no one can sign up with you again. Right. And B, because if there's a problem, you'd rather find out now than later. So you've got to right? go like, it's like, it's like uh, you got to go stake your claim. Like you got to go get yeah, your piece of your, land before the squatters your come. your own name, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it's interesting, in the comments on the Krebs thing, I saw at least like eight people that were like, I've read your article, I went to go do it, and found out that my account's already been claimed. Jeez. Uh, so there's that. What dicks. Uh, but yes, yeah, so the Krebs article goes on and is very good. Yeah. Uh, and the timing's good, now, too. in Canada, we do it slightly differently. Surprise. Uh, to get access to your CRA account, uh, you go to the website and you sign up, and they're like, in a week, we will mail you a passcode to let you in. Yeah. Uh, and we've mailed it to the address we already have on file for you that you can't change. Or like, y- you have to have changed it. Uh, Before you try to sign up. If you up. change it, you can't request your account for like three months or something like that. So like if you, it it basically has a safeguard against right. somebody going in and changing your right. address and yeah. then immediately sending the, the code. They have to be a very patient scammer. Yeah. <laughs> but in general, it means that it definitely gets sent to your real address, not some fake one. Yeah. Uh, and then when they do have to do security type questions, instead of being based on your credit report or something that the government doesn't actually have handy, mm-hmm. they base it on your previous tax returns. Hmm. So like the random example one I had was what was lying 350 from your 2013 tax return? And so I had to go to my 2013 tax return, look right. it up, type right. in the number. Yeah. And, you know, most other people wouldn't have access to that. Yeah. That's neat. I, I, I have. It seems, A, easier to implement on the government side because they don't have to depend on an exterior agency like the credit unions or credit uh, bureaus. And also more secure because it's not something that is easy to figure out about me, right? No one else should be able to find out what line 350 of my tax return was <laughs> versus being able to find out, you know, what year I took out a car loan or something mm-hmm. random off my, my mm-hmm. credit report. Because my re- credit report is actually not very interesting and so it doesn't have very many things on it for them to ask me questions about. 
Right. You know, until I got a mortgage, I'd never owed money on it. Uh, and unfortunately, I've discovered a couple of times my credit reports had wrong information on it. So if you quizzed exactly. me on stuff on that, you would be asking me the wrong stuff. A couple of times. But you asked me and I don't have the answer. And so I like, you know, you can't have access to the Fraud! account. Because yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? I, <laughs> yeah. No, I think I would know better than the credit bureau whether yeah. or not I had that. Yeah. Yeah. And it happens. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Alan, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, no. That's All right. It. We'll have a link to the whole write-up, which was a really good one. Krebs worked his butt off on that one in the show notes. I'll tell you what, Alan, one last thing that I worked my butt off for, and that's DigitalOcean. I love DigitalOcean. I have so many droplets these days, it's crazy. You know you know Noah on the Linux Action Show? Mm-hmm. He contacted DigitalOcean. I think he had to have them increase his limit. He's got like 25 droplets. Yeah, I think they have a default limit of 10 or 20 Something. just to prevent uh, yeah, somebody being people. crazy. Yeah. yeah. But he's well, like, hi, I'm Noah from the Linux Action Show. And they're like, oh, hey, Noah. And he's like, yeah, so I need more droplets. And they're like, so because Noah's got clients. I mean, Noah's got so many things he uses droplets for. And at $5 a month, the value is incredible. Now, if you're not familiar with DigitalOcean, let me tell you a little about them. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. And with our promo code, you're going to be able to get started with a $10 credit. So you can try it out two months for absolutely free. Just use our promo code SNAPOcean. It's one word, SNAPOcean, lowercase. Users can get started in less than 55 seconds. Wrap your brain around that. You're going to get a nice, fast, powerful server up in the cloud that you have full root access to in less than 55 seconds. And pricing plans, they start at only $5 a month. Five freaking dollars a month. You'll get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer for $5 a month. But if you use our promo code, SNAPOcean, well, then you get the $10 credit. You can try it out two months for free. No credit card required. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. But take a look at this interface. They've got a demo on their front page, and it really this isn't like CG. Well, I mean, maybe. But this is really what it looks like. Uh, it is so simple and very intuitive, but very powerful. You can create your droplets, destroy your droplets, transfer your droplets. You can do full DNS management. Obviously, that's super critical. A full range of snapshots. You can do templates, do management of your snapshots, one-click installations of things like Docker, GitLab, Do- um, um, Rerun Rails, uh, the whole PHP stack, Apache, obviously, LAMP stack, obviously, all that stuff. One click away, totally up to date. You get it from the repos of the distro so the packages could continue to get updated. You get all your security fixes. And then you can replicate that, a- that their, their, uh, their control panel with their API. They have a great API that lets you replicate the functionality on a larger scale. So go over to DigitalOcean, use the promo code SNAPOcean, get the $10 credit. So I've told you about their UI. I've told you about the fact they're using SSDs, which is really nice. You're going to get the dense I.O. performance that you want. Something you used to have to have a traditional large RAID array with lots of disks. Now you're getting it from these SSD drives, which means the density is really tight. You can get a lot of performance. That's why they have it connected to Tier 1 bandwidth. These things are screamers powered by the KVM virtualization engine. But on top of all of that and their incredible UI and their fantastic API that the community is running apps around all the time, they also have fantastic, fantastic, fantastic write-ups. Here's a couple I've picked for you. Uh, Seven security measures to protect your servers. This is a really great write-up. They've got editors that go through this stuff. They talk about SSH keys. You guys already know that. All this stuff that's really great, uh, the different basics of firewalls and services you should turn off, enhancing security from there, VPNs and managing your system through a VPN. But they didn't stop there. Check out this one, Alan. It's like they were watching this week's episode of TechSnap, MongoDB, with one-click <laughs> install. 
<laughs> Why not go play with MongoDB right there? I swear, it's perfect. It's so topical. Go check it out. MongoDB, one-click installation, how to do it on the DigitalOcean droplet. And look, here's an example of some of the applications right here. Here's a screenshot. Uh, WordPress, Drupal, GitLab, Node.js, Docker, OwnCloud, Redmine, FreeBSD, AMP on FreeBSD 10.1, Django, MediaWiki, Doku, the entire LAMP stack. Look at all of that right there, and that's just some of them. And then they have a whole bunch of other great things. This is, look, how, look how comprehensive this is. Look how easy this is to read through. And there's the person that wrote it right there. That's great, huh? And that's all just over on DigitalOcean. Go check them out, digitalocean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean, and then you're going to get a $10 credit. You can try out that $5 rig for two months for absolutely free. DigitalOcean's crazy awesome. Go check them out and see why I rave about them so much. DigitalOcean.com, SNAPOcean. Thanks, DigitalOcean. Hey, speaking of stuff that's pretty cool, uh, the new episode of BSD Now just came out, episode 83 of the BSD Now program. Uh, what, Juan DSB? What is this? Sounds like a tasty treat. <laughs> like something maybe fried. BSD Now spelled backwards. Yeah, I see that. Why? <laughs> Why, Al? What's going it's on? April Fool's Day. Oh, of course. Our pun writer completely failed to have an April Fool's Day pun, apparently. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty good. Uh, that's not yes, the best like one. Every episode has a crazy pun. I actually, I one. did get it, but it also looks like a tasty, I think maybe I'm just hungry. It looks like a fried Chinese treat that I would yes. dip in like some sort of soy based sauce. <laughs> <laughs> Go check out BSD. Anything you want to plug for BSD, uh, BSD Now 83? Um, uh, yes. Um, the Google intern, it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, yes, we had a, a, a Google intern uh, who we interviewed at HBSDCon. Uh, and uh, at the end of the episode, sadly, uh, we have a memorial for her mm. mentor who died over the weekend. I heard about that. Uh, suddenly, after uh, he was a good friend of mine, and after uh, getting to spend uh, the weekend with him in, in Tokyo a couple of weeks ago, I was very shocked to learn that he passed away last weekend. Sorry to hear that, Alan. Yeah. yeah. And he had a great beard, too. He was a real Eunice yes. beard guy. So it's always yeah, sad. So to there's see. A, a short <laughs> memorial to him at the end of the episode. Very nice. Episode 83 of the BSD Now program this is about the halfway point in the TechSnap show. So if you want to go grab the HD version of BSD Now and have it ready for you when we're all done, now's a great time to do it. Find it over at jupiterbroadcasting.com, BSD Now 83. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or even better, submitting a contact form. No, submitting something to our subreddit. You know that over at techsnap.reddit.com. What? You didn't know that? Oh, that's why we don't have any emails on the subreddit this week. <laughs> well, our first email comes from Jason. And he says, I heard Alan like CFS. He says, I'm an old Windows sysadmin with very little free time. I remember being a young whippersnapper and, looking my and locking myself away for hours or days at a time to myself something new. Well, those days are long gone since I had kids. With that said, can you recommend hardware or a basic free NAS ZFS build? I want to build a NAS for those for the house to store backups of pictures, videos, etc. And he's got kids, you know, they're important pictures, Alan. I thought about getting QNAP or Synology for ease, but then maybe, just maybe, I'd build it myself. It got cut off, but that was the end of it. Okay, I was going to say. <laughs> um, well, really all you need is any computer with... Uh, at huh. least four, but preferably eight gigs of RAM and two hard drives. So that's so okay. But how low can you go on the CPU? What would you say? The CPU and Atom is fine. Anything so even like sixty, anything that has to be elite, has to be sixty-four bit. But amount of CPU power, none is required. Fair enough to say anything Pentium four or better. Yeah, anything that's sixty-four bit. Okay, anything sixty-four bit. 
And that could be some Core 2 processors that have been around for a oh, while. Yeah. You can get lots, pretty much yeah. anything that's less than like eight years old. Will okay. Be perfectly so uh, now, so and eight gigs. Ideally, you want eight gigs of RAM. Though. Okay. And, uh, you and can do four, but you shouldn't. Now, uh, at what point do I need more than eight gigs of RAM? Is it based on how much storage I yeah, put in the box? Uh, basically, you want like four gigs plus one gig for every terabyte of storage. Four gigs of RAM. Four is better, but yeah. Four gigs of RAM plus one gig for every terabyte of storage. So if I have, yes. wow, okay. So okay, and last but not least, uh, obviously software RAID. You don't care if it, if they're uh, if they're ATA drives, SATA drives, fiber attached drives. Just well, ATA drives would be too old. But yes, oh, will they? SATA drives home. Well, I mean, I'm assuming. Uh, I don't think they ever made an ATA drive over 200 gigs. Oh, okay. Well, I'm just trying to think. I want to see how low he can go here, so he knows. Right. Uh, so I would say, oh, yeah. okay. So I would say then, uh, really anything x86 yeah. base would probably be easiest yeah. for him. But he exactly. could he could anything do a Raspberry Pi. Uh, four gigs is gonna be. I think that's that's not sixty four bit. Oh, okay. And you're not gonna be able to get sixty four gigs of RAM or uh, four trying. gigs of RAM on a Raspberry Pi. Even a Raspberry Pi two is only one gigabyte of RAM. You can make it work, but I'm I'm it's I'm, not I'm, what I'm just want uh, to. I'm wondering <clears throat> unless he has the hardware. If there's you, not if a you lot. You don't want to worry about it. You can just buy a free NAS Mini from. From IX, that's systems. true. That's, that's true. You know, solution. If he was going to buy a QNAP or overpowered for well, if he was going to buy a QNAP or Synology, he might just want to look at the free NAS Mini. He can even get that yes. from Amazon if he wants. Yes, they sell them on Amazon. Uh, the problem with the NUC is there's no room for hard drives in it. Well, you could go with an external drive, but it's going to have to be no. over but Ethernet. USB. And don't, don't do no, don't no, don't no. don't do Ethernet, don't do USB. It'd have to be iSCSI. And it's only one only one NIC on the NUC. Yeah, and so yeah, that's not what NIC. you want to do. Yeah. Uh, so the best. Thing is, yeah, but any uh, x uh, any sixty four bit computer Actually, with four plus gigs of RAM and two hard drives you know, will let you play with ZFS. You know what I do, and it, uh, I do I do an, at home I do a NUC on the front end, and then uh, uh, that does an NFS mount back to my storage. Right. So the way it works in my house is I have a big, tall, noisy tower in the basement. Yeah. Full of like my six hard drives, all three terabyte drives, doing the fun stuff. Yeah, and then yes, uh, you, on the VESA mount on the back of my TV is a NUC that then connects <laughs> to that <laughs> nice. and and plays the videos on my TV. Um, okay, so there's a few different ways you can let, let us know what you do, Jason. Send us an email. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but it's not that hard to learn. Um, and Freenas is super and, easy to just play with, even in a VM. Yes, to experiment and there's with a very them. good uh, handbook that comes with it, written by Drew. Okay, and so, uh, the FreeBSD handbook has a big ZFS section that I helped mm, write. Mm, uh, you might have a particularly a good experience for our next question here, Alex. It's about a travel router, and it's for hotels and stuff. He says, "Hey, uh, I'm currently in a hotel with crap. <laughs> He's in the hotel right now uh, with crappy wide open Wi-Fi. I bet it's just sitting here stewing about this. Last time I configured each device to get on the network and then used a VPN on each device. Back to my PFSense router at home. This time I bought a little TP-Link MR3020, so each device would think it was connecting to our home network. This worked well. The better the connections, but still I have to VPN." each device. We have a secure Wi-Fi network within the room, but then the data goes out through the hotel's Wi-Fi. It seems like I should be able to have a travel router and VPN everything at once. I can't quite get get it right, though, on the MR3020, and I'm not sure it could even handle it anyways. 
could the new Raspberry Pi 2 or something like that do this? Uh, he says, or something like it with maybe a fast Ethernet or USB. Uh, I thought about making a spare laptop for a remote PFSense router, but the little USB Wi-Fi just don't work as well as in BSDs. Uh, any thoughts on how this could be done or has been done by others? Thanks. Love I know show. that Adrian Chad has ported FreeBSD to two or three different TP-Link models where you can actually run FreeBSD on your TP-Link. And then you could make it into a basic router that would just forward everything through the VPN. Hmm. What about doing uh, something? That's, that's really complex. That involves like soldering a serial port onto it yourself. What and, about like uh, yeah. one of those alternative firmwares on like a you know like a, a hardware router? Um, or something? I don't know if most of them, like most of them, want to act as a VPN endpoint where you VPN to it. Yeah. So I, I love. You can definitely do it with a PF sense. Yeah, yeah. You can say, hey, VPN, everything. I would, you know, if I was him, what I would, I mean, I just don't know what his budget is. Sometimes you guys, when you ask us this stuff, include your budget. So, because we, because seriously, we can, we can recommend stuff that you put together with tape and we can recommend stuff that's tens of thousands of dollars. So, we let us know uh, what your range is. But I would say, what about one of those hardware PF sense boxes? Like those physical little red boxes. Yeah, uh, they are kind of tiny. Because the thing's a pain, it's going to be a pain in the butt to haul around some big laptop everywhere you go. But if you could just move this little. And I imagine it's about the same size as that TP3010. Uh, although Elroy in the chat room says that there's a guide on uh, TechCruncher Lifehacker that explains how to do it on the MR20, uh, 3020, oh. and he's using it now on a 3010. Uh, okay. So That's great. it may be possible to just do it with what you already have, but if not, yes, one of those little PFSense uh, APU ones, that are, you know, they're small, uh, and they have the multiple ports that you want, mm-hmm. and uh, they're quite handy. Um, yeah. I usually only have like three devices and, you know, my phone, I don't need to go over the Wi-Fi or uh, over the VPN. So, yeah, uh, I've not really had this problem. I, I have a little like microscopic uh, USB uh, powered router that I use when I travel, mostly just to share my one Internet connection, the Ethernet port they give me between my laptop and yes. my phone and, yes. and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's not quite the same thing as what you're asking for. The other problem I've had a lot of times is uh, um, there's just Wi-Fi can be super. Of course, a lot of times I'm in hotels is because conventions, so they're packed. But Wi-Fi can yep. just be super messy. And if I was running, I mean, obviously, you know, whatever. But if I was running a hotel IT, I'd be pissed if people kept bringing their own Wi-Fi routers and messing up my Wi-Fi networks even more and jamming on my channels and all that kind of stuff. So maybe bring like a Wi-Fi analyzer on your smartphone and just scan the open channel range first and put your Wi-Fi on a channel that's not already taken. That way you're not being a dick with the hotel's built-in Wi-Fi. As somebody well, who just... The best thing about mine is, is Japanese. So this is a channel you can't use. That here. is nice. I, as somebody, I was just over at a local hotel helping them as sort of an exchange... So I, I was trying to like, hey, I'll help you guys out with your network. And then when I have a bunch of people coming in for Linux Fest, why don't you give me a discount? You know, like, you know, a little trade of services. And one of the things that they're having problems with is their Wi-Fi network because people bring in Wi-Fi routers all the time and leave them on and they go crazy and they're pieces of crap. And like people have like custom firmwares where they turn the signal way up when they're not supposed to and they don't understand that they're causing noise and whatever. All right. Fillmore writes in with our next email and that's about Linux server management. He says, hello, Chris and Ellen, huge fan of all the JB shows. I am an IT manager, systems admin for a school district in Delaware. Historically, our environment has been nearly 100% Windows servers. However, after years of looking at opportunities to add or convert systems to Linux, we are now in the midst of a Linux revolution. We are starting slow. File servers, our ticketing system, and web servers. But the momentum is definitely moving in the direction of Linux. So now to my question. With all of this said and done, 
Well, we probably ha- we will probably have between 15, or I'm sorry, 25 and 50 Linux VMs and physical hosts, mostly Ubuntu. What would be the best method to manage this sort of load? I've looked at Chef, Puppet, Ansible, and Salt from a high level, but I'm not sure if those would be overkill for an environment of this size. Should I just stick with shell scripts? I would really appreciate a little guidance. Thanks for the help. Keep up the awesome work. Fillmore. Um... No, those are kind of, you know, once you get over 10 or 15, that's when these tools start to make sense. Definitely. Uh, I'm currently using Puppet, but from things I've heard and looked at, I'd rather be using Salt. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ansible, I've also heard very good Ansible, things about, yep, yep. although uh, it depends how complex you need to get. Ansible is easier, but from my understanding, slightly more limited in what it can do. Um, some of the things I do in Puppet are just horrible. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there are ways like uh, with, uh, you know, you get you get SSH keys set up on every host. You could rsync out config files. Um, well, see, that's the, the time you build that solution. One of the primary could, things I use Puppet for is pushing my SSH sure. keys out to every right. host. And, 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 and realistically, the time you would build any system like that, you could just implement Puppet or yeah. Salt or whatever. I mean, yeah. And, you know, uh, you get the advantage of this other stuff already working yeah. and there's modules already written that you can adapt. And It's really, too, about helping you automate standardization because you can yeah. talk about standardization, you can talk about having roles for servers, but when you have a system that actually implements it for you, and honestly, you know, you can implement your deployment procedures around these systems, too, and that's really something you should look at, Phil Moore, is think about how this could automate how you deploy servers in the future, especially those VMs, and then right. I think um, it becomes a no-brainer. So there's uh, kind of... So these tools are config management. There's also orchestration tools. The one I've heard of is Foreman mm. uh, that works with Puppet. And uh, oh, cool. last year at Asia BSDCon, so not the 2015, the 2014 one, uh, Martin Matuska gave a talk about using Foreman to do Pixie installs of FreeBSDs on the machines and the VMs and then bootstrap uh, Puppet into them. And then uh, Foreman passes it off to Puppet and Puppet configs the server. But Foreman also does all their inventory management stuff, so it even takes care of removing a server from uh, production and like recycling it. I and like be like, that. oh, we're getting rid of this hardware now, or oh, yeah. this hardware is off lease and it's going back to Dell or whatever. That's sweet. So they they know every machine where it is, what it's doing, uh, what the warranty status is, and it does all that kind of stuff for them as well. Which I'm guessing you're going to have to deal with as well. Uh, you know, school boards often have leases like that, and mm. and. Uh, because it lets them get continually, basically, a way to standardize getting new hardware every three or five mm-hmm. years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and you know, having that inventory management stuff ha- in there as well can be quite handy. Eddie writes in with a sanity check for us <clears throat> for FreeNAS and backups. He says, "Hey, great show, guys! I firmly believe we need to have at least three copies of data to be safe. I currently have a Windows VM serving files. This VM is backed up locally and replicated to a colo." I want to move files to a FreeNAS server, but it maintains the three copies. So my plan is, and remember, we're doing a sanity check here, number one, a production FreeNAS server serving up all of the files with snapshots for recovering files in the past. Number two, another FreeNAS server on the LAN that receives the replicated snapshots throughout the day from the production FreeNAS server. And then number three, a third FreeNAS server in the colo that receives replicated snapshots nightly from the production server. But before I attempt this, I just wanted to make sure, is this a foolproof plan to have three copies of data with a history of restore points via snapshots? Is there anything I'm missing? Thanks for, the su- say- thanks for such a great IT podcast. Smartlersh, a.k.a. Eddie. Uh, no, that's perfectly sane. You just we need to make sure you have a grandfathering policy for the snapshots so that you keep enough snapshots uh, from the right times. Uh, 
you know, if if you're only keeping the last seven days worth of snapshots and it takes you eight days to realize you need the file from yeah. a month ago, yeah. then uh, it doesn't help you. But uh, in general, uh, yes, that pretty much works. Here's the thing, though, but and I, it's just it's a little. Uh, I mean, it does make sense to me. I don't. I understand. I track, but it seems a little possibly obtuse. Like if somebody else were to come along after he goes after Eddie moves along here, like okay, so if I want to restore it at this point, I recover snapshots on this server. But if I want it uh, at this point well, in this state, I do it. Generally, uh, the snapshots will be the same on all three servers, except for sometimes there's going to be snapshots throughout the day and some snapshots. But then on one server, is only going to have snapshots in the evening. So some servers will have some snapshots, and one server will have other snapshots snapshots at different times, right? Because right. if one only gets them at nighttime but and one's getting them during the day, well, uh, the, the and one's getting them one, in real time. Right. The one, the offsite one will probably end up with all the snapshots depending on your retention yeah. policy. Yeah. It just, it'll only sync them at when night. nobody else is using yeah. the internet connection at night. Yeah. It's, so it's not bogging down I just the say though, it's, it's probably worth documenting because yeah. just so there's uh, no confusion. But yeah, uh, you know, and FreeNet says most of the features of this built in and that will help uh, uh -huh. as well. Yeah. Very nice. So good. Good luck, Smart Lurch. Uh, and uh, you know that's the advantage to using something like FreeNAS uh, because it is first of all extremely capable, second of all appliance-like, and third of all free. The you don't have this overhead if you want to make multiple rigs. You just have to have the hardware, and a lot of times businesses have hardware that's capable of doing this. They're not even really using in production. Uh, you could even you know a lot of times the test lab has equipment well, that's good actually uh, how we ended up with the PFSense for one of our customers is they had a bunch of these Cisco ASA security appliances. And they were trying to stream video, and basically they top out at like 100 or 150 megabits, and it couldn't keep up with the amount of traffic they would push during peak each night. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're like, well, you could spend like you know 80 grand for a, a new Cisco ASA that's more powerful and can push more traffic, or we can take that test server that's sitting over there in the yeah. corner and install yeah. PFSense on it yep. and plug it in. It's yeah. got four gigabit NICs and uh, I, problem solved. I hate robbing the test bench, but sometimes it's just the fastest way to get something done and you can replenish the test bench later. Well, exactly. That was when I was a co op student uh, during high school at the power plant. Uh, I got stuck with that job one day. So <laughs> a, a, sweet, a whole, like a stack of switches got zorched or something somehow. I forget how. Uh, but one or two of the switches at, at some critical place in the network died. Mm. And, you know, the replacements are going to be shipped the next day, but we need switches now. So go to the test lab, grab the switches, take them over there, and uh, hook them up, and problem solved. Uh, my job, the scut work, was <laughs> the next day when the replacement switches arrived, go and put them up in the test lab. But in the test lab, we have very, very specific wiring setup ah. where at each location in the test lab there's a little punch down block with four switch ports each one corresponding to you know if it says seven on it then it's port seven on switch one two three sure, and four sure. out, out of that block and so all of those cables weren't labeled originally they, they were all hooked up correctly <laughs> when they started but i had to like trace <laughs> each cable uh -huh. label it and uh -huh. then reconnect them to the right switch did you start cutting yourself after a while i would want to cut myself i think um the worst part was a i had to stand on a little stool because the switches were mounted up high um and b it was right beside the air conditioner Oh. It was actually a bad place for the switches. So the air conditioner was blowing hot air yeah, at me. Ex yeah. so I took a step down, then it was blowing cold air yeah. at me. Yeah. And you're not a short guy either, so those must have been pretty no. tall switches. Yeah, pretty high they up. were mounted on, on a little shelf, like <laughs> practically on the... They were practically mounted to the ceiling. Um, but yeah, thinking about it, it probably wasn't good to position them where the air conditioner was, was blowing hot air was on venting. the switches. Yeah. <laughs> 
gosh. Well, it wasn't the vent because that actually has to go outside because it's oh, exhaust. Oh, but yeah, yeah. It was. Okay. It was still. Yeah, there was hot air coming out the side, and so Jeez. it probably wasn't good for the switches. No, but, no. I yeah, that so. wasn't that a fun day. Uh, all right. Well, that brings us to the end of the emails. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and click the contact link. Choose a TechSnap from the dropdown and then send it in or uh, go to the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com or just email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And if there's been something rattling around in your mind and you'd like to get in for our uh, double recording session on the 23rd when Alan's in studio, send it in. And uh, I bet you have a pretty good chance of making it into the show. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Round. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the round of our stories just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still wanted to give you some links to follow up on after your show. A lot of these links came from that super impressive subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Well, mildly impressive. And, Alan, our first story in the roundup this week, uh, not never invented here, the even worse sibling of not invented here. You were teasing this earlier in the, the show. Story. Oh, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, first I, of all, just to recap on what we covered uh, last week, we talked about those Facebook uh, laser drones. Oh, yes, shooting yes, down yes. Internet. Yes, I see that story. Uh, yes. Well, apparently they successfully tested their laser net internet drones. Yeah, the, the ones where we're like, how could they do that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, although when I clicked through, it didn't seem to have any details on how it worked. Yeah, no, they just said they did it, didn't they? But, yeah. Yeah, the ones with the wingspan of the Boeing 737. There you go. That's big. Uh, all, all right, right yes. so, sorry, where I jumped into. This. Is this one yeah. the one that you teased me earlier about, about yes. the uh, not invented here thing? Yeah, so there's not invent here, and then there's the worse never invent here, hmm. uh, where basically we always use, like we said, always using like off-the-shelf stuff and trying to make it all work together and never doing any custom development. Uh, and, you know, sometimes sometimes you need some, at least just to integrate those three custom things together or three off-the-shelf things together or to make the right change. And, very true. And really where this comes in, it's, you know, if you're using open source, then it's much easier to integrate those two things because your custom development is a couple of minor changes to the application rather than uh, you know, having to design something external to the, the commercial application. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, where you end up, this app then outputs its data as XML, which then we input over here, reform and output as a different XML that then gets read into this program that mm -hmm. does something to it mm -hmm. and outputs its XML and then back and forth and back and forth and XML all over the place. <laughs> XML uh, everywhere. Right, and you know, uh, you can get into the whole discussion of you know when you make changes like that to open source. If you can get the patch accepted upstream, then you don't have to maintain it. And you don't have to worry next time you want to upgrade and all that fun stuff. That's a good point too. Yeah, it's an interesting line to walk, Alan. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. Next story in the roundup. Uh, a few thoughts on a cryptographic engineering blog. These are the folks that were doing uh, the audit on TrueCrypt. So we remember it's like yes. being done in waves. I believe is that. Yeah, sorry. it's basically. Yeah. You know, they're kind of working in their spare time. Well, here's, to do it. here's something for us to start watching now on the TechSnap program. The TLDR, though, is uh, the, the, the ne next wave of the audit is wrapped up, and they see TrueCrypt appears to be a relatively well-designed piece of crypto software. The NCC audit found no evidence of deliberate backdoors or any severe design flaws that make the software insecure for most instances. It doesn't mean it's perfect, though. Specifically, they called out the uh, random number generator stuff under Windows, saying that it basically allows you to predict what the random number to be generated will be, which obviously, as you know, is not going to make the crypto all that secure. But like, for example, on other operating systems, that does not appear to be an issue. There's other problems in there, but uh, overall, TrueCrypt doesn't appear to be the train wreck we were suspecting it might be. Right. Well, uh, 
we don't know what the author's original problems with it were. So. Yeah, or, or maybe what threats he received. Uh, yeah. All right, so let's talk about Firefox real quick. New version mm-hmm. of Firefox says, might as well to encrypt all web traffic. That's the Ars Technica headline. Uh, developers of the Firefox browser have moved one step closer to the internet that encrypts all the things. Well, I guess. Uh, that's because this opt- opportunistic encryption is being included in the next uh, version of Firefox. Opportunity. Oh, hard for me to even say that, Alan. Boy, I'm such a spaz. I'm such a spaz. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, while we're talking about Firefox, one more Firefox story. <laughs> mm-hmm. A, uh, a, uh, a oh, if, not- you, if you use Firefox on Linux, ah, dang it. Then uh, an MP3, a malicious MP3 file could uh, the, the, lead to code yeah. execution because of the Fluendo MP3 GStreamer plugin, which um, is pretty much on all Linux boxes. Yep. Yeah, that are desktops. Sadly, this actually also affects uh, FreeBSD because it also uses... Uh. Uh, even if you're not using the Linux version of Firefox, uh, on, on FreeBSD, you can use the Linux Firefox binary or the uh, compiled FreeBSD one, but in both cases, you would use GStreamer and have this problem. Right. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, thanks to the subreddit, we got a follow-up uh, from the New Jersey school district that had its computers held ransom with that uh, crypto malware that uh, wants Bitcoins. Uh, well, uh, according to NJ.com, which is uh, the true New Jersey.com website that really tracks New Jersey news, uh, the computer network hostage situation was really a result of weak passwords and firewall left wide open. Um, yeah. So that's not too surprising there. Could have guessed. Yeah. Six is uh, uh, the, the Eric team. I don't know who that is. Set six engineers to the elementary school on Tuesday to work pro bono on the case. And it was their opinion that uh, after they were able to turn the clock back a little bit and recover some of the systems, it was mostly a situation that would have been avoidable if it wasn't for weak passwords on the network accounts. Yep. Mm-mm-mm. Alan and Chris are not surprised at all. No, not at all. You didn't patch your S and you had bad passwords. Yeah. I've been hearing, we've been hearing this percolate up more and more and more. Speaking of Wi-Fi at hotels, maybe our writer had a very good point. Uh, big vulnerabilities in hotel Wi-Fi routers are putting guests at risk. And we've talked about this a little bit, Alan. But Well, this one is one specific model of router that's specifically marketed to hotels. Yeah. Uh, you see the model name there? I think it's underlined in blue. Yeah, it's from uh, the Innigate routers made by Ant Labs, it says. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they've... In the scan, they found over 250 of these that were directly exposed to the internet that they could find that were vulnerable. And then there's probably a bunch more that aren't directly exposed to the internet because they're behind a a firewall or just blocked or whatever. 277 in 29 countries. Yeah. uh, Those are the ones that are publicly exposed, and there's probably other ones. Yeah. Uh, And in total, uh, yeah, they could be... The researchers uncover vulnerable systems at hotels that belong to eight of the top 10 chains in the world. Yeah, so there's lots of these out there, and uh, they need a firmware update. Yeah, no kidding, Alan. Good call on that one. Ah, well, so uh, an attacker could get access to the root file system on these and then make it do whatever he wants, including extract the configuration, install something that will allow him to spy on all traffic as it goes right. through, right? run TCP well, dump or and whatever he wants. fits in very nicely with that story we saw where uh, people were using uh, compromised Wi-Fi routers at hotels to deploy malware on the guest machines and start spying on the guests while they're at the hotel. Exactly. It's Stealing it's, uh, corporate documents that way. Yeah. Fits in right nice with that. Uh, <laughs> I love it when you just grab something funny off Twitter from time to time because I never expect it. Out of this tweet, every stack overflow question. Uh, and, and it starts with, I'm not aware how to use Google. How do I do basic thing in language X? <laughs> oh, and then the, then the number one answer, lazy but functional answer with no extensibility. <laughs> And it's got that's the accepted answer the accepted with, one. Uh, with like a couple of votes. Yeah, yeah. But below it is a much better answer with like 
a ton of votes. Yeah, 248. A lot of people think you should do it the lazy way. However, in the long run, it'll help out if you read this well-eloquent wall of text and actually describes the problems you'll inevitably face, but not take the time to read about here. Enjoy these code samples and illustrations I pulled from thin air anyways. <laughs> right, and so if you look at the person that posted the accept answer with 12 votes, they're Joe Coder and have like 1,300 points. Uh, the guy who posted the crazy explanation has 34 million points. Yeah. Yeah, that's... That's and then, and then, professional coder has five thousand points and just said the official way to do this is, and then links to the standard or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is pretty much every Stack Overflow thread. Yeah, that's kind of sad. And uh, if sysadmins didn't know, there uh, Stack Overflow has a site called Server Fault, yeah. uh, where they uh, have questions for sysadmins. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, you can use it uh, if you have sysadmin questions. It's not a whole bad place network to of them. It's really cool. So uh, how about this for the roundup? A first, perhaps, may- maybe, a link to a GitHub page. Is this a yep, first uh, for the so roundup? This is, this is uh, no, we've hmm. done many okay, GitHub pages. Um, um, a researcher uh, has found a problem with SE Troubleshooter. So uh, Red Hat and other um, distros that ship with SE Linux yeah. have this little Python app that can tell you, hey, you know, when a program, uh, when SE Linux finds a problem, uh, you can get a report. Uh, to make that report more useful, this little Python script figures out which package installed the file that's causing the problem. So you can be you get a better idea of what's happening. Turns out it was written very poorly. Mm. And uh, by running a couple of commands, you can cause SE Linux to execute whatever command you want as root. Whoa. So using this little helper app, you basically yeah. get uh, the full So house. in this case, I think it was... By creating a VPN connection, which Network Manager uh, allows any user, even an unprivileged user, to do, uh, you can cause it to start running whatever command you want as root. That's not good. So yeah. this little Python. So why can some Python app like this do this to SE Linux? Because yeah, as a Python write app runs as, as root yeah. as part of SE Linux. Gotcha. Uh, basically, he did look at it and found that there's more lines of other crap in SE Linux than there is of actual SE Linux. Hmm. Who uh, it's kind of grown so much crap onto it? Remind me who made SE Linux? I have no idea. Oh, I don't. Do you? Who did it? You don't have a guess who made the S- who made SE Linux? Yeah. No, the NSA. <laughs> the NSA developed. Oh, uh, helped. Oh, uh, right, right, right. Yeah. I remember that. With Red Hat, they also did trusted BSD. Yeah, they helped. Which actually works, but ah. because they they had they paid real professors to work on it, not you Red know. Hat guys. Ouch, Alan, that hurts. That hurts. The Red Hat guys are good. I, good. I, I don't mean it like that. Really. <laughs> but you kind of. Also, do. there's another score you. St- Another story you skipped. Oh, well, I was do, having, you have a, do you have a tab to point yeah. to the Guardian somewhere that you missed? No, I have. I just have. I have just have. I just have like all kinds of tab problems on. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. I saw that Guardian story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the personal details of a number of world leaders, including Barack Obama mm-hmm. and uh, Vladimir Putin and a bunch of other, were accidentally emailed to the Asia Cup organizers <laughs> by the Australian Immigration Department, uh, and <laughs> the they decided to cover it up and not tell the people that they exposed their personal of details. No bigs. Which included like passport numbers and a bunch of other things. Look at Putin with those koalas. Um, the interesting, but well, A, apparently it happened because the autocomplete on the email address or something <laughs> caused it to go to the wrong place. And uh, B, the question is, why was that type of information being emailed around unencrypted anyway? Oh, jeez. But, you know, expecting bureaucrats to know how to use GPG or something is too much to ask, so. We should just, we should just not allow bureaucrats to use computers. Mm. I might just fix it. Uh, all well, right. At least, uh, that article's you know. worth it for that picture alone. Putin holding a yeah. koala. That's that's all kinds of adorable. How could you not like that guy? Look at him with a koala. All right, Alan, any other uh, items we need to cover in today's episode? 
Is that it? I think we just came to the end, right? Nope, that's it. Wow. Yeah. Boop, 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 boom, and we're at the end. Well, all right, so let's recount some uh, basics. Join us live. We do this show over at jblive.tv Thursdays. We start at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is... 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Boom. Over jblive.tv for the video, jblive.info for the audio, including a like mobile-ready version. Techsnap.reddit.com. Make the show better throughout the week. Also, submit stories there. And uh, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact to send us your feedback because we want it. Absolutely. And, um, oh, yeah, don't forget about the meetup if you're going to make it to Linux Fest Northwest. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. Yes, and send us your emails so that we'll have something to talk about yeah, that, uh, week that week. That week will be very good. Yeah, and that'll bring us to the end. All right, everybody. Well, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week.